Romans 12, starting at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we are continuing our journey of obtaining 2020 Christian vision. And just for review, you remember that we kind of decided when we started this that, that if we were going to get 2020 vision as Christians, we're going to have to get some corrective lenses, you know, that this is not something that you're born with. Um, you know, my daughter Bethany has got really terrific vision. She was born with it. She doesn't need glasses like everybody else in the family. And so we're all jealous of her. But unfortunately, when it comes to your 2020 Christian vision, you all need glasses. We all do. That's because we're born with something called natural sin that prevents us from having 2020 vision. What is it? It's a worldview that interprets everything you see and experience through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian worldview. So today we're talking about your relationships with those people who threaten you. Now, the Bible uses the word enemy, and we talk, we're going to talk about that particularly, but I wanted to broaden the term a little bit and say, you know, those who threaten you, because I think we can all agree that basically our enemy is the one who threatens my family, me, the people I care about, the people in my Christian family, the, the children we care for in the preschool. You know, we have this sense that anyone who threatens them and endangers them as an enemy. So we, we think of enemies in those terms, but I want to be more specific for a while and I want to flesh this out according to scripture. So who is your enemy? When you think about someone you consider an enemy, why do you consider them an enemy? What is it about them that makes them your enemy? And, and does anybody else think of them as an enemy? You know, when we start thinking about our enemies, it gets a little bit subjective, doesn't it? We find ourselves a little bit uh, unsure about what constitutes an enemy, especially if we're Christians and we're trying to find the Lord's way. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. The first thing we have to keep in mind is those things that we all have in common. So if we're going to understand who our enemies are, the first thing we need to do is understand uh, and, and interpret the Bible's view of humanity. People were all made in God's image. The scripture tells us that that's how we were created. So we all have this God-given nature. That is to say we have all this 
in common. We all have a way of viewing ourselves and our circumstances in a like-minded way to God. In other words, we've got a certain free will and self-determination like God, and so God gave us the very gift that gives us the possibility of rejecting God's will. We all have that in common, and we've all been made radically flawed as a result of sin. And so all humans are flawed because of a natural sin that is part of our nature. This is where we all have these two things in common. But it departs or moves in a different direction after that because now we've all got a choice we can make. Everybody's been given a choice. Some haven't made it yet, but some of us have. And the choice is whether to accept God's grace to forgive us for our natural sin and our tendency to resist God's authority in our life. And if we all have that opportunity, then the only thing that separates us from others is whether others have accepted that or whether we have accepted that. Having accepted God's grace to forgive us for our sins and the sacrifice of Christ that purchases our redemption, then we have all the same spirit nature infused in our being as we're born again into the Christian family, into the family of God. And we can all have that in common if we've made the same choice. It does mean, though, that we are separated from those who have not accepted that gift, who have not changed their lives by being born again. That's why we say that as Christians, we are no longer of the world, even though we remain in the world. So it doesn't mean then that the non-Christian is our enemy, but it does show us that there's a separation between the family of God and those who are not part of that family. The interpretations of good and evil and moral righteousness are all different for the believer, for the follower of Christ, for the one who's been born again. Interpretations of the nature of an enemy is affected by this system of belief, this change of your nature brought on by the Holy Spirit. And so we can say that the world that we are no longer a part of, and yet we dwell in it, has a different way of looking at what an enemy is and what good and evil are than we do. But what should we think then about enemies? Who are our enemies if we are children of God through Christ Jesus? Well, in this letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul said this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may not be able, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So as a born again child of God, we are compelled to resist that enemy 
Who is that enemy that Paul is speaking of? Well, it's a little hard to find this on your own in the Bible. It takes a little research. It helps if you know somebody who's been around it a while. But the Bible does tell us the story of the enemy. The Bible tells us that there was a time when one of the most glorious of all the angelic beings that ever dwelt with God, having been created by God, rebelled against God. This one was called Lucifer, and he was, they called the bright morning star before he fell from grace, and he, as we tend to call him a he, but it could have been, you know, who knows, angels, male, female, I don't know, doesn't matter. Lucifer rebelled against God, basically felt that he could do a better job of being God than God. Imagine that arrogance to look at your creator who spoke you into existence and say, you know, thanks for making me, but I think I can do a better job of this than you. The pride and the arrogance of Lucifer to begin to become so deluded with the idea that he was superior to his creator. And so eventually God cast him from heaven and a third of the heavenly host went with him. This is the story that the Bible tells us about the nature of the true enemy, which is Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan is alive and active to this day and that there is an endless war between God the forces of good and Satan and the forces of evil. Who are these powers and principalities that the Apostle Paul speaks of? These who are not the flesh and blood that we wrestle against, but the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness? They are the forces of evil led by Satan. This is not the kind of stuff that we want to believe in. I know a lot of Christians who claim that Satan's not real and there is no hell, but there is. The Bible makes that very clear to us, and there is an active enemy who would desire that everything precious to God the Father would be taken away from God the Father. Can you, can you think of anything more evil than someone wanting to turn your children against you? Think about it. It's a theme in literature. It's a theme in, uh, in movies and, and so forth. It's, it's like Pinocchio and Pleasure Island, right? It's, it's the desire of an evil enemy to turn your children against you, to make them hate you, to make them reject and distrust you. And this is what Satan does. You know how we know? One of the first stories you learn in, in your Christian life is the story of Adam and Eve. What happened to Adam and Eve? They lived in this perfect creation, this beautifully ordered creation. We would call it cosmos. That's a word that describes perfect order according to God's will. They lived in this perfect order and God gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the True of the tree of knowledge and life, and, and they, he, God had a reason for that, but the, the fact is, is that during this place and time, Satan was able to creep in. He came in as a serpent, and the word that the Bible uses originally is a Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word that's nakash. Nakash. But they don't say 
words without spitting them out like that. See, you got to hack them up if you want to say Hebrew things. Nachash. Right? Thank you. So, Nachash is a word that describes something almost like a dragon. But what it means is, and the Genesis tells us this, is that it was Satan. It was the enemy of God who came into the garden. And this enemy tempted the humans to distrust God, to doubt God. He was trying to turn God's children away from him. And he succeeded. The people sinned of their own uh, intention. They did it because they wanted to, but they hadn't given it much thought until the liar, the deceiver, the trickster led them toward doubt, played on their weaknesses and their innocence. And then they lost everything. Chaos became the order of their lives. They left the place of cosmos and order. The Bible tells us that God placed two cherubim at the gates of the Garden of Eden after the fall because, why? To keep the people out? Would it take so much to keep the people out? No, to keep the enemy out. To keep the enemy from getting back into the place of order. Now, now we're getting close to who the enemy is. Now we know who the enemy is. The enemy is always the one who through deceit and lies and trickery creates chaos. Do you want to know where the enemy is at work? Look for chaos. Think about your week. Think about things you saw in the news, things you read in the local paper, things that are going on in your workplace, even things that happen in the life of a church. Wherever there's chaos, that is where you will see Satan at work. Satan is always behind the chaos. Chaos causes this sort of stuff, okay? Chaos creates injustice and hatred and violence. And by the way, violence isn't just physical, it's also verbal. In fact, there's been an incredibly horrible increase in verbal chaos and verbal violence in society lately. It seems that we have so many unique and remarkable ways to communicate that we have been able to be violent in our speech in far more creative and industrious ways, haven't we? Wherever people wound each other with words, that's violence. Violence results in harm to another person. And harm can be inflicted both with deeds and words. Wherever you see injustice, oppression, hatred, violence, and war, there is Satan, the creator of all chaos. Wherever you see kindness and mercy and gentleness and self-control, peace and joy. You see the cosmos or the beautiful order of the creation that God made. Who is the enemy? The enemy is the author of chaos. The enemy is the one who inspires oppression and injustice, violence, cruelty, condemnation. The enemy 
is the one who drives families apart, breaks marriages, breaks other covenants, breaks relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ, breaks up communities, breaks up societies. Our society is broken right now. And if you look carefully, you can see the violence, you can see the oppression, you can see the injustice, you can see the chaos. And then, hopefully, maybe right here in this place, maybe in your house because of your devotion to Christ, you can see the order and the community and the peace and the joy and the soft-spoken and gentle firmness of a faithful follower of Christ who brings order. So take heart. Christian, because if you're born again, it means that you are equipped for peace and equipped to resist chaos. You got to be careful. You are equipped with the tools to protect yourself from chaos, and you are equipped with the ability to bring order and peace. But you have to start with yourself. Because do you know who the enemy is most likely to wound first? It's the person in your mirror. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you at some point in your life and perhaps still find yourself looking in the mirror and saying all sorts of cruel things to yourself? You're too fat. You're too short. You're too tall. You're too skinny. You're not bright. You don't do well at sports. You're not good at this. You're not good at that. You're dumb. All the cruel things you say to yourself. That's violence. You're speaking violence to the one in the mirror. That means Satan's got a hold on you. In the most gentle, most gentle, that's not what I meant. The most delicate place, the most, the most fragile place is your self-esteem. And we don't know how to deal with that as Christians because we think as Christians we're supposed to be humble and modest, but, but that's not by being hard on yourself or cruel to yourself. That's Satan talking. What do you imagine Jesus would say to you if he stood behind you while you looked at yourself in the mirror and you said, you're too fat, you're too tall, you're too skinny, you don't have enough hair on your head. You're too pimply. You're not smart. You're not whatever. All those terrible things you say to yourself, can you imagine what, say, what Jesus would say if he was standing right behind you? He'd say, you were fearfully and wonderfully made by my father, crafted in your mother's womb by the love of your father and mother. You were worth saving. You were in and of yourself, the only one that needed to receive this gift in order to justify my giving it. He would say, I died for you. I rose again so that I could spend eternity with you. I found a way to help you make peace with the Father because the Father adores you. And he wants you with him for all time, all eternity. He wants you to know the fullness of his grace and glory in your life. That's what he'd say to you if he was standing behind you when you were beating yourself up in the mirror. 
And so the first place that you have to recognize the enemy is in the violent injustice, oppression, and hatred that you express towards yourself. And I'll tell you something I know from a lot of experience is that people who are deeply oppressed by their own negative feelings about self and identity become oppressive to others in the same way. They will abuse children with violent speech and sometimes violent actions. They will abuse coworkers and friends and family members with violent actions and speech, all because of the deep-seated hatred that exists in their soul, inspired by who? Not Christ, the enemy. This is why I said a couple of weeks ago that the most important thing any Christian can do to witness for Christ, to bring others into a saving relationship with Christ, is to work on yourself. And so you don't want to put on a good show for everybody about what a great Christian you are if you go home and beat yourself up or beat up your people and your family, right? If you want to show people what a glorious God you have and the power that God has to change lives, to change eternal futures, let it begin with you. Let it be with victory over self-doubt and hatred for self. Let it be with victory over destructive habits and behaviors that ruin you for others and for yourself. Let the victory over sin and death begin in you. This is the real saving nature of God's grace. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian, when you're surrounded by other people who say it. It's easy to go to church when it doesn't require anything of you other than to show up and participate. It's a whole entirely different thing to be so sure that your life, eternal life, depends on the infusion of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis and the elimination of the evil that torments you. Who is the enemy? It's Satan. Now, turning this slightly towards another direction. What is a Christian supposed to do then about the enemy? How should we respond to the enemy? Well, we've already talked about the most important place to fight the enemy, to look Satan in the eye and say, I have been saved by God's grace because God loves me enough to save me and you hate me enough to try to take me away from him. He has given me authority over you that is equal to Jesus' authority over you. Therefore, Satan, stop lying to me, even if it sounds like it's coming out of my mouth, and go back to hell where you belong. Okay, that, that's what you got to do. First step with the enemy is recognize that you've been given authority over the enemy and you can, by the mere statement of faith, because it takes faith to say this, you say, can I really tell such a ferocious enemy to step down and back off? Remember what Jesus said when Peter made his confession that Christ that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, this truth, Peter, is the one that gives us authority so that the gates of hell cannot resist it. He didn't say, 
This gives you a better lock for your door to keep Satan from getting in. He said, because I am the Christ, the son of the living God, and you have confessed it, you can storm the gates of hell and they can't resist your authority over them. When Satan's lying to you in the mirror, tell him to get lost. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, coursing through your being. And then ask that God might sharpen your vision of the world and things and begin to recognize how Satan works around us, always looking for a flanking position, always looking for a way to undermine our, our defenses. Ask God to show you this. And you begin to recognize the chaos is the key. You know how they used to say, probably still do, follow the money if you want to understand the source of, you know, some criminal behavior or whatever. Well, follow the chaos. If you want to know who the enemy is, backtrack through the chaos. Out here on the fringes of the enemy territory, the chaos is somewhat limited, but the closer you get to the source, the more chaotic and insanely bizarre it gets. You know, the closer you get to the source, the headwaters of chaos, the nearer you are to the enemy. And what does this look like? Well, I mentioned at the beginning, and I'm going to mention now at the end, that we started with the basic understanding that we are all made in God's image, but we're all flawed by sin, and that some accept God's grace and forgiveness and transformative power to no longer be like they were when they were given over to sin, but some do not. Now, there are many people who are not inherently evil, but they haven't accepted Christ as the authority over their lives either, so they're on that fringe of chaos where they're just really wrapped up in themselves because that's the essence of sin, after all, is the pride that makes you think that everything you do and say and want and need are more important. You never really consider God. We know a lot of people in our workplaces and our schools and various aspects of our lives, even in church, who if you really grilled them on this, they might declare that they're really more of an agnostic than they are a Christian. They believe there's a God, but they're not particularly interested in an interactive relationship with the God because it might create expectations they'd rather not have placed upon them. You with me? It's one thing to believe in God, it's another thing to believe that God has authority over your life and you need to subject yourself to God's authority over your life. Those are the fringes of chaos. Then, watch. Watch where the real chaos is happening. Watch violent attacks in schools and workplaces. Watch violent, bitter, arguments and, and, and chaotic so-called debates. Watch the evil that is spewed out of people's mouths in public venues for the sake of political campaigns and things. Look for the chaos. And remember where the chaos comes from. Remember how chaos slithers in to order and starts a system of doubt and distrust for God. 
that leads to all-out vanity on the part of human beings. Where you see this chaos, you see that human vanity. Where you see this chaos, you see oppression and anger, hatred, violent speech and violent actions. You see all of these things. And there is where the enemy is. And so finally, I'll bring it home with this point. What do we do about violence and the enemy and the chaos in our midst? Well, here's what I've learned by reading scripture. Jesus sent out two parties of evangelists. The first time he sent them out, he told them to not take anything that they could depend on, purely God's delivering of everything they needed. So they didn't take swords, they didn't take purses, they could leave their cloaks behind, didn't matter. They were just going to move through communities, preaching the gospel, and relying on the glory of God through them, leading to the things they would need. But then the second time he sent them out, he sent them with their purses full, swords in their belts, cloaks to protect them from the elements. They must have still been carrying all of that when the Garden of Gethsemane happened because one of them, we've always assumed it's Peter, when Jesus was threatened by the temple guard, pulled his sword from his belt and struck one of the temple guards and wounded his ear. And Jesus said, stop, not this time. We're not doing that this time. And he heals the person that was struck with the sword and he orders his followers to put the sword away. So how are we to interpret that in our own world? Well, first of all, I'll start with mild problems and then work my way up to the bigger ones. But let's just say this. If you have in your church, let's say, arguments over ridiculous things and chaos is introducing itself into order by breaking down civility and, and a sense of community and shared purpose for the glory of God, if these debates turn into arguments and the arguments turn into insults and, and violent speech, then, then someone has to say, enough! Satan, go back to hell where you belong. Somebody has to call it. And frankly, I've learned that it usually has to be me. Not because I possess superior judgment, but because somebody has to be willing to recognize that this is Satan trying to destroy what God is trying to build, to bring disorder to something that God meant to bring order to. And somebody's got to call it. Somebody's got to have the courage to call Satan out and send him back where he belongs. But what about physical violence? You know, we have a safety and security team here. We are meeting with other members of the community and the religious part of our community throughout the next couple of weeks to build a coalition of safety and security people at the various churches because chaos is finding its way in, in the form of physical violence. And we have to be vigilant. Jesus equips his disciples with pouches for money to buy the things they need and swords to protect themselves from danger and cloaks to protect themselves from evil. The only thing I can tell you is, is that apparently it just depends on whether or not using force to protect yourself interrupts God's plan. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Jesus told them to put the sword away because God's plan didn't include that. So the answer is, I don't know. I guess we have to be equipped and prepared and vigilant and ready to deal with the enemy wherever the enemy raises his ugly head and we have to be courageous enough to deal with it and then also have the heart of love and discernment that comes from the spirit dwelling in us to be able to recognize that this may be a moment when we need to let the Lord's plan run its course. So I'm not going to leave you with a definite answer to that one. It's situational, and it requires prayer, faith, discernment. But we do have an enemy, and we need to be prepared for the enemy, and we need to recognize that the enemy is operating through people who have given themselves over to sin. He operates through some of us when we just give ourselves over to sin temporarily, but, but nevertheless, evil people do exist. And the Bible makes it really clear that God will, for a season, reject people because they're given over to sin. God will, for a season, just step back and let them work it out. So what do you do if you're praying for your enemy? You pray that God will create so much pressure that they finally recognize where the chaos is coming from and they ask God to intervene. This is exactly what he did over and over again in the Old Testament. Wherever the people of Israel, his chosen people, would give themselves over to sin, God would just back off and let it run its course, and then somebody would courageously recognize what was going on and call out the sin, call out the chaos, and then plead with the Lord to intervene, and then things would start to get the way they were supposed to be. This is how you pray for others, especially for your enemies. You can't ask God to take their will away unless you're willing to have God take your will away. And so when you're asking God to intervene with someone who has to seek God's intervention, the best you can hope for is that God will create so much external pressure that something has to give. And I promise you this works because I've seen it. People say, pray for my son. He hasn't set foot in the church since he was 12 years old and he's 62 now. And we pray and we pray and we pray and then we find out that they've been experiencing pressure after pressure after pressure after pressure and God has created a, a sort of environment where they have every opportunity to recognize where the chaos of their lives is coming from and where a potential source of order can come from. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring what we've said and done together in this worship service. Be glorified, we pray, and give us strength to face the enemy not by ourselves, but with you. Teach us to be kind to ourselves, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.